you're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. We have another special for episode 26. It may have taken us a while to finally discuss at length the work of one of the most influential paleoartists of all time, but perhaps that is owing precisely to the onerousness of the task. The Art of Zdenjak Burian for Life Before Man, written by another Zdenjak, Zdenjak Spinar, first published in 1972, is our full episode Vintage Dinosaur Art Subject this month. But first, in our slightly belated July news, um, Niels, an evolutionary trade-off between pterosaur size and parenting. Indeed, uh, pterosaur parents, or wait for it, pterans. Thank you, thank you. Not going to dignify with response. <laughs> Here all week. Um, plenty of news this week. We had to omit quite a bit, but uh, I-, I think we arrived at something we are all... Uh, reasonably satisfied mm. with we're not going to talk mm-hmm. about slightly dubious mammals attacking dinosaurs no 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 no, no we're just going to talk about endless papers involving dave hone our favorite person yes hi dave hi dave hi dave he, he is our favorite person favorite dr dave um pterosaur pterans uh we've talked before in this spot about pterosaur flaplings being hyper precocial that is extremely independent and able to fly and fend for themselves from basically square one. A new paper by Zhijiao Yang, Baiju Jiang, Michael J. Benton, Jing Zhu, Maria McNamara, and Dave Hone, that man again, now delves more into the diversity in parenting behavior among pterosaurs. I'm sorry if I butchered any of those names. I'm not sorry if I pronounce it pterosaurs. You should be. This has been arrived at in a slightly roundabout way. Uh, The research project started with a question about how pterosaurs like Tyrannodon could get so much larger than any other flying animal in history. If we um, compare large pterosaurs to small ones, we see a significant difference in growth patterns and allometry. I'll explain that in a second. Uh, All pterosaurs, big or small, they all start small. So a Tyrannodon baby has much more growing to do than an Neurognathus baby. Question is, how different are the babies from the adults across different species of different sizes? Um, What the researchers found was that in smaller species, like Neurognathus and Pterodactylus, I don't think it was Neurognathus proper, I think it was an Neurognathid, we see negative allometry. This means that the babies are born with relatively small heads and relatively big limbs compared to the adults. And it is the heads that grow faster as they age. I'm just gesticulating wildly and nobody can see it. (laughs) It helps maintain flow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You'll notice that it's the other way around uh, as with humans, right? We're born with big heads and our limbs grow bigger relative to our bodies as we age. That is positive allometry and that's what makes babies cute, right? Arguably. Yeah. (laughs) It's the, the noise less so, but uh, but the the the, the allometry positive allometry was also fine to be the case in Pteranodon, a later much bigger pterosaur. Uh, these babies are born cute. 
with relatively bigger heads and smaller wings compared to the adults. And this seems to suggest that these babies are less precocial, maybe less good flyers, and more dependent on parental protection and parental care. But, you know, with babies that cute, I'm sure the parents won't mind. Uh, The trend seems to be that uh, as the later pterosaurs grew bigger, their chicks became more vulnerable and the species needed to invest more energy into childcare, though more likely it was the other way around. Investing more into parenting meant removing a constraint on their size, allowing a pterosaur the size of a dinky toy to grow into something the size of a small plane. Uh, Of course, with pterosaurs, the data set is always pretty dinky itself, so sweeping generalizations are probably not very wise. Nevertheless, this seems to be a good rule of thumb to start out with. The bigger the wing, the cuter the offspring. That really is fascinating. The paper is open access. Hooray. (laughs) The paper is open access. You got it, Mr. Key. (laughs) Yeah. Hooray. And is linked to in the show notes, as always. So this means we can go back to the Burian classic Pteranodon feeding on a cliff, right? Feeding its babies, just like in the book. Well, yeah, just like in the book. we can go back to that, right? Right. Maybe it was just uh, sort of a crocodilian thing where they sort of protect the nest and then they sort of protect the babies, but they have to fend for themselves quite yeah. early on. I mean, behavior doesn't fossilize. Yeah, that really is fascinating. I'm, I'm trying, suddenly finding myself trying to recollect whether prehistoric planet ever showed any pterosaur parenting, and it doesn't, does it? They're usually left to defend, uh, to defend, no, it doesn't. For themselves. Um, yes. Yeah. But of course, hmm. uh, the, the species shown was a fairly small species. I yes, believe. that's right. Yeah. What about uh, there are. Astarchy babies. There are Astarchy babies. Basically fending for themselves. Um, so am I well, the, the, the um, I forget, Barbarodactylus, um, I think. Th- those were the Nyctosaurus, right? Yes, they were. Yeah. yeah. Were those but the babies? they're not far removed from Tyrannodon. No. 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 So. Science yeah. marches on. Science marches on. Prehistoric planet <laughs> is ruined. <laughs> ruined, I tell you. Never. All right. Thank you so much, Niels. You're welcome. Uh, Mark. More pterosaur news from you from a certain Dr. Houghton. Um a new a new pterosaur whose name isn't likely to cause any confusion at all. No, okay, well this one's sort of old news now because obviously our recording has been postponed a little bit. Uh, but I do want to mention this because I have to say that Dave Hone et al. are trolling us all. I'm gonna blame Dave even though there are other odds on this paper. I'm pretty sure it was his idea though. Probably. I, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Because we have Petro, possibly Petrodactyl, well, Hofferi, uh, a new and large Tino-Casmated pterosaur from the late Jurassic of Germany by Honatel and published in Paleontologica Electronica. And did you mean pterodactyl? No, I didn't. Uh, it's a description <laughs> of a specimen that's been floating around for a little while. And the generic name is based on a printing error. And it's just designed to wind everybody up from now until the end I of time. I am so confused already. Every time you type this thing into a search engine, it's going to say, did you mean pterodactyl? And, um, oh, my no. goodness. But as per the paper, the name harks back to the original description, the first pterosaur, pterodactylus, uh, Tino Casmusid. <laughs> oh, you did so well earlier. I know. The name harks back to the original description of the first pterosaur, pterodactylus, a Tino Casmatid from the Solnhofen archipelago, which is called the pterodactyls in pterodactyl at the time. However, the name Petrodactyl appeared on the cover of the description, brackets QVA 1809, apparently in error. Yeah, as I said, presumably Dave's co-authors all agreed on the name, but I'm going to blame Dave because I can. 
Damn it, Dave. Uh, it's an immensely cruel name for anyone used to typing pterosaur and pterodactyl over and over. I mean, I was trying to write this uh, little bit of spiel here and just kept on typing the wrong thing repeatedly. Oh, it's no. like torture. <laughs> um, although at least Niels will have less trouble since, of course, he insists on pronouncing P in pterosaur and he can't say pterodactyl. Well, I'm sure you can try. At least there is no confusion here. The P is definitely not silent. No, otherwise it'd be pterodactyl. <laughs> stupid. Um, the specific name on his noted pterosaur researcher, Peter Wellhofer, who was once one of the approximately three people in the whole world studying pterosaurs and has contributed, therefore, a vast amount of knowledge to pterosaur research. Um, in any case, it's an unusually large Sonhofen pterosaur, wingspan of over two metres, um, quite complete, but unusually for the Sonhofen, it's also not articulated, um, and with figure three in the paper actually giving a nice idea of just how much of a jumble it is. Um, and it also appears to be to not quite be even fully mature, although, um, as David said on his own podcast, it's a little confusing in that respect because um, it's probably close to being fully grown, but it shows some characteristics that indicate it wasn't, but some other characteristics indicate that it was, and it's, uh, you know, according to previous research, and it's, so it's a little bit um, confusing. And they do note that it is possible, albeit very unlikely, that it's an exceptional morph of another known taxon with only unusual features and proportions because of its size, but it's sufficiently different from other similar taxa to make such a hugely varying morph unprecedented. So, yeah, it's probably new. Uh, I said, well, new in the sense that um, it's newly described. Uh, it had long legs, uh, had a very large, very, very large rostral crest. Um, so it's considerably larger than that seen on any other tenochasmatid pterosaur or, te- or tenochasmatoid pterosaur, uh, even accounting for the large size of the holotype. So, yes, big crest. Long legs, small conical teeth, not especially robust teeth, but a strong bite. Um, they therefore think it was wandering around, wading, piscivore, eating small fish. Uh, also some other aquatic animals, you know, cephalopods, small crustaceans, and so on. So, yeah, interesting, but mainly I wanted to mention it because of that name. Because, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of... I suppose this is one of the few occasions where you can really get away with it. Um, it's, it's quite clever in a way, you know, because obviously Petrodactyl, Stonefinger, makes sense. Harks back to the early days of pterosaur research. I suppose we should applaud him, but on the other hand, it's just really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and it's often you say, so it's from the same beds as Pterodactylus yes, proper. it is. And they're both uh, tenochasmatic. I'm sure this is going to cause no confusion, confusion at all. At all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. And uh, lastly for me, something completely different. Uh, it's always a real pleasure to have dinosaur news from my natal soil, not least, because they tend to be so few and far between. And this is a pretty significant one, because Minimocursor punoiensis, a late Jurassic basal neonithiscian, is the 13th named dinosaur from Thailand, and the first named dinosaur taxon from its formation. The paper. A new basal neonithiscian dinosaur from the Pugradung Formation, Upper Jurassic of Northeastern Thailand, by Sitta Manitkun et al., describes this little dinosaur. Discovered in 2012 in the Pugradung Formation at the Punoi locality in Galasin province, the fossil consists of a more than 50% complete articulated skeleton and, as such, is one of the best preserved dinosaurs from Southeast Asia and the earliest known Neonithiscian from the region. Uh, a quick recap, uh, reminder, 
of uh, Neonithischia, which uh, remains a much debated classification. Um, it's a clade of herbivorous dinosaurs, including ornithopods, marginocephalians, and small bipedal basal forms that were historically referred to as hypsilophodontids. Who else? And one of the best-known basal Neonithiscians from Asia is, of course, Colindodromius from Siberia, uh, famously ah, yes. preserved. Exactly. Famously preserved with both fuzz and scales. Um, and Minimo cursor seems, for now at least, um, not to have differed a great deal from its uh, small-bodied Ornithischian kin in appearance, with its um, blunt-snouted, possibly beaked head, its gracile hind limbs, and a possibly correspondingly long tail. I say possibly because th these happen to be the missing elements from what is otherwise a beautiful preservation, but whose inference can with some reliability be made from the animal's taxonomic relationship. But in short, um, you know, it's your little gazelle-like Ornithischian. Uh, it doesn't look a great deal different from any of its uh, uh, relatives. Um, and, and there are some remaining bones, uh, the authors say, still under preparation, including another skull. So we may know a little more about its appearance yet. Um, but that essentially is that. In conclusion, the discovery of this dinosaur, according to the authors, provides new information about the biodiversity, biogeography, and early evolutionary history of Neonithiscians during the late Jurassic to early Cretaceous time interval. Good paleo news for Thailand, for Southeast Asia, and for Ornithischia. Neonithischia, I should say. Shall we move on to vintage dinosaur art? Vintage dinosaur art! Life Before Man, written by Zdeniek Spinar and illustrated with the paintings of Zdeniek Mikhail Frantisek Burian, first published by Archer in Prague in 1972 and by Thames and Hudson in the English language edition in the same year. Um, I mean, where do we even start with such a work? The book has been written well, about on our blog by, well, well, by both you, Mark, well. and by <laughs> our Lord and Blogmaster David. And need, needless to say, it has been the subject of many appraisals by others elsewhere. It's really an art book dis disguised as a science book, right? In many ways, yes. Yeah. So um, when this came out in 1972, Burian uh, already had a very, very long career behind him. Uh, Zdeniak Burian, of course, Czech painter, born in 1908, Widely considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, paleo artist of all time. Yada, yada, yada. You know all that. But uh, he is actually one of those people who more or less happened upon paleo art by accident. Uh, he was already a celebrity in his home country from uh, very early on. He got famous doing covers and illustrations for very famous novels from people like Arl Stevenson, Rudyard Kipling, Jules Verne, etc. Of course, uh, he had done some mammoth scenes for a novel, and that's how he attracted the attention of a scientist called uh, Joseph Augusta. Burian, uh, he was an admirer of Knight, and he did have an interest in paleo art, so they started a collaboration. Their partnership lasted for over 30 years in what is known by Burian scholars as the Augustinian period. Yes, there is such a thing as Burian's <laughs> Isn't that yeah. wonderful? The Augustinian period. Um, of course, it's like Picasso, right? You have a blue period and a green period and whatever. Um, the Augustinian period is more or less considered the golden age of Burian's work. They produced a bunch of books together, uh, of which 1956 Prehistoric Animals 
is the most famous and important. That book contained 60 paintings, very respectable. As is well known, uh, Burian and Augusta had no access to dinosaur fossils, uh, but what they did have um, is scientific papers. They could work from photographs and they just kind of did what they could. Let's be honest, most of well, you do that. People have access to better reference material these days. I mean, yeah, unless you're living somewhere true. really remote, you've got internet access and you can get on and get access to pictures of specimens from all over the place and skeletal diagrams made by wonderful talented people but mostly scott hartman <laughs> and uh no, he's not the yeah. he's not the only one anymore no 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 he's not the only one anymore i'm kidding um but yeah they really didn't have any of that stuff so they just had to do as well as they could with what they had and they you know buran did try and be i believe as you know, rigorous as possible he was extremely serious arguably mm-hmm. he took it more seriously than uh, than charles knight, knight did, did. Yeah. yes yeah people have often been baffled by how knights for example his theropods have puny limbs and that contradicts their anatomy like their skeletons clear quite clearly whereas if you look at um burian's theropods they got i mean like the t-rex the famous t-rex drawing forwards has massive thighs so back to um back to augusta this uh, this joseph augusta uh he was of course the the main scientist for a while and he was a bit of a of a romantic soul he was a he was a scientist and he was a storyteller he, he wrote novels. He encouraged Burian to add a sense of narrative to his scenes and to emphasize the, the strangeness of the animals, showing the, the fantastical, the incredibleness of the, of the lost world. Now, uh, Joseph Augusta died fairly suddenly in 1968, ending the Augustanian period. And, uh, of course, plenty of paleontologists were quite eager to scoop Burian up for their own projects. And this is where Stanjak Spinar comes in. Um, Spinar wanted to work with Burian to make an updated version of prehistoric animals, uh, but much larger in scope. And Spinar was a very different breed of scientist. He set much more store by scientific accuracy than Augusta did. He made Burian go back to rework some of his older paintings to better reflect the new science, sometimes to downplay that strangeness that Augusta liked so much. And by this point, the dinosaur renaissance was beginning to kick in, and the, both of the Zdenjaks were definitely paying attention. Mm. Burian was very interested in the progressive side of paleo art. Yes. Um, The book they worked in became Life Before Man, which we are discussing today. It has a whopping 162 pieces of art, although I believe newer versions have more. Um, I mean, in spite of what Augusta might have felt about um, uh, Burian's early work, um, the book reuses some 130 paintings um, from the Augustinian period. Um, Yes which um, really uh, shows just how much um, Spinar did respect. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Well, that and let's, let's, be, let's be honest, they were under a bit of time constraint. Right, uh, that, Burian that's did always... Produce, yeah, that's always the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Burian did produce a few dozen new paintings for the book, but as you said, Nati, um, the majority of the book does consist of classic work from the Augustanian period, much older than this 1970s vintage. The front cover of my edition, uh, I don't know if it's the same for yours, Nati, but probably for Mark it is, is the very scene of Trachodon and Tyrannosaurus that we've already mentioned. And this is actually the very first piece of scientific paleo art that um, Burian did with Augusta. And that one dates all the way back from 1938. So the art in this book spans 
well over three decades, three decades. of Burian's life. That is yeah. astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> but as you said, I think this piece uh, is one of the pieces that has been updated and has been changed a bit. Yeah, I believe some aspects were modified, like the head of the Tyrannosaurus. Isn't that right? Um, feel the bits and pieces. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an astonishing book, astonishing achievement, almost a uh, you know a lifetime's work in here. It's, right. <laughs> you can yeah. never really get tired of looking at it. Quite apart from the animals, some of the most striking pieces in this book are actually just landscapes. Yes. In a scene that features prehistoric animals, we're used to only paying attention or primarily paying attention to the animals, unless you're some weirdo who's really into prehistoric plants. Um, sorry. <laughs> but with where the animals removed, we the focus is only on the flora and the strangeness of it. And they're so atmospheric and beautiful and they, they really draw you in. Yes. You know, you might say, well, it's just painting from trees. But I think it's tremendously hard to do with something that doesn't feature, oh, you know, by grabbing fauna in it. Absolutely. It is just trees and mountains and clouds. It's entrancing, I think. Well, completely. Yeah, especially the one that depicts sort of the earlier geological periods where the plants are almost unrecognizable. And in the cases of the Precambrian periods, completely yes. absent. The very first uh, paintings that are in this book are actually among the very last he produced for it because these are the ones that he did for Spinar. He never did pre-Cambrian scenes before. But these are just rock formations. They're sort of they're, alien landscapes. You can get yeah, lost but, in them. Right, but they're stunning, aren't they? They're just... Absolutely. They're so powerful and dramatic and, and, and cinematic even. And yes, and there is that element of the, as you say, of the, the strangeness, the unknown. Yeah, much we... Love the landscapes. I could talk about them all day. And, and they are um, something that's easy to forget <laughs> about this book until you revisit it. And then, and then say, right. oh, yeah, those amazing landscapes. Because, yes. of course, the depictions of prehistoric animals, all of these are so seared into our memories just through endless reproduction, but also copies, of course. And like, especially the dinosaurs. People have copied them over and over and over or you'll see them remixed into other scenes by other artists. Yeah. Um, but there's the, the dinosaurs and the mammals as well. Yeah, the mammals. I mean, obviously, I'm mostly pay attention to the dinosaurs that must have been. Yeah, we're allowed yeah we're, we're allowed to be dinosaur biased here aren't we i mean i'm mean, check out the name of the of the show and the blog I mean, <laughs> yes <laughs> it's not really surprising because this stuff looks so beautiful and convincing that it's it's natural that other artists would want to be heavily inspired by it shall we say yeah and yes. also oh, yes. of course it helps that burian was absolutely a celebrity and this book was found in Every home across Europe at some point. Every home? Uh, well, I mean, it would have been one of the very few such books that were available, actually. So it, um, it, it yeah. stands to reason that this formed the strength of his reputation for a good while. People will copy something that looks remotely convincing. But in this case, um, it, you know, it deserved to be referenced in the way that it was. It's, it's all um, stunning work. I mean, some of the most immediately recognizable from their many, many imitators would be things like the Pteranodon feeding its babies on the cliff which is copied so many times, um, either just the Tyrannosaurus on its own or with the babies. But that's also that's also one of those images that just, uh, uh, you used the word seared into our consciousness, Mark, earlier, the phrase, rather. And, and yeah, that really d describes it. That's one of the iconic early paleo images. And um, whether or not any new research on pterosaur um, parenting behavior, aha, linking back to the news, um, 
uh, surfaces later on, um, whether or not it happens, this image gets repeated uh, continually. The, the visual language of a pterosaur on a cliff top uh, feeding its young, you know, that becomes one of the uh, repeated motifs, if you will. Uh, the Carithosaurus as well, which I swear was even turned into a model at one point. It was, I'm sure it was the basis for this um, Horizon model kit. Was it Horizon uh, originally? And then I'm trying to think, because I remember it was then the same mold was reused for the Jurassic Park, original Jurassic Park models. You had like a T-Rex and Raptor that were actually based on the film. And then you had this Carithosaurus that looked like some Burian throwback yes. because it was mm. basically. Um, I suppose just being copied all over the place. I think I actually had a toy that looks very much like the Iguanodon. Yeah, that's very... And uh, the the painting of this Iguanodon is one that I've actually seen in real life. There were half a dozen of Burian originals at Tyler's Museum in 2020 during the Paleo Art exhibition. And this one was among them, as were the Pteranodons. So those are two that I've seen for real. Excellent. Iguana is obviously thoroughly outdated, sort of mid-20th century thing. It's very much in the vein of Neve Parker. But it does have nice, big, robust forelimbs and hands. So, again, shows you that he was paying attention a bit there. And, of course, as with so many of these, the the composition as well is beautiful. Um, clearly, it meant so much thought put into that. I mean, the classic one for that is the Tarbosaurus, of course. You've got to, say, you've got to mention that. The hero Tarbosaurus. With the low horizon. This is a later period uh, Burian piece. And here's one where you can see that he is embracing the more modern uh, visions of dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, it still has the spread eagle pose, which looks very uncomfortable <laughs> nowadays. But yes, it's tails off the ground and it looks alert and kind of agile. Um, yeah, mainly, I mean, this one's memorable for the composition. I think I said the low horizon, the dramatic clouds, the emphasis on the height of the animal and its sheer size, the, the skull being right at the top of the piece. Yeah, the triangular uh, shape that the, the Tarbosaurus occupies just almost completely bang smack in the middle of the canvas. Exactly. Tarbosaurus batar. Batar means hero, right? I think Maliev spelled it wrong, but uh, I think that's what it's meant to, meant to be. I think so, yeah. little allusion to that. <laughs> Do you happen to know when the Gorgosaurus versus Scolosaurus piece is from? Because that is on the basis for so much paleo art, particularly the Scolosaurus, um, which I am pretty sure was the basis for that weird Volta design life-size model that popped up everywhere. Yeah, you know, it's crouched down and it's got a really short tail, which of course was because of misinterpretation of the broken tail on that. I don't know uh, what year it's from, but uh, I've definitely seen lots of versions of it, uh, especially the Scholosaurus. This is what Scholosaurus looked like in popular culture until basically the 90s. And I've seen many Tyrannosaurs in that sort of weird stoop-down pose as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, this this piece especially, you mentioned Neve Parker. It, it reminds me very much of Neve Parker, but it could just be because it's in grayscale. It could be the monochrome, yeah. Also, that Tyrannosaur is quite fat. Yeah. <laughs> Which Neve Parker did do as well. <laughs> Other extremely famous pieces that appear in here. I don't want to use the word iconic because the word iconic is overused and it, my people yes. just mean just to mean significant. But in this case, it really is. It's an icon of Paleoa and it's the brachiosaurs in the lake. Absolutely, I think we are. No, I think we are allowed to use the word in relation to Burian quite legitimately. We're using it correctly, David. Yeah, absolutely. And and yes, this brachiosaur is is definitely one of those. Isn't it the case that some attempt was made later on to remove or downplay the water? But really, it's the watery version that everyone remembers—the dramatic cutaway, revealing the animal standing there. 
yes, thoroughly outdated, discredited science, but another stunning piece and hugely influential in itself. Even with the water removed, it was being copied later on. Ditto Diplodocus striding around. Diplodocus on land as well, it should be noted. Yes. That looks very much like the Invicta model. Um, and <laughs> yeah, not overly tubby, not overly puny limbs, I think. Not exaggerated either, but um, yeah, nice big shoulders on that. <laughs> graceful um, swan neck, though. Graceful swan neck. Well, that's my interpretation. <laughs> oh, going to non-dinosaurs, the plesiosaurs, I think they're actually plesiosaurus itself on land, one of them looking back over its shoulder towards the sea. Um, very much like, very much in the vein of modern day seals, sea lions. Uh, they, you know, they're coming onto land to do whatever they've got to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Again, thoroughly outdated, been copied a million times, very atmospheric. The pterosaurs hanging upside down, um, pterodactylus with no crest, hang upside down from a tree. Marvelous. Yeah. Marvelous. <laughs> and just anything involving like dramatic seas i mean obviously there's the very night like mosasaur uh tylosaurus versus elasmosaurus but then you also yeah. have things like the two the two ichthyosaurs um stenopterygius leaping from the sea but breaching and jumping and yeah the uh dramatic waves there with and the sort of echoed by the clouds in the sky and it's just ah <laughs> it's beautiful yes, to look at you can just, I know. you know absolutely stick yeah. any on your wall but I'm not making particularly intelligent comments, sorry. I'm just going, ooh, ah. No, no, that, no. Ah, but, no. Yeah. But, but eliciting sighs is precisely what these things do. I'm just like you, Mark. Essentially, um, I'm just going to say, much as I did with uh, Prehistoric Planet, you know, they're a bit good, aren't they? And there the conversation ends, <laughs> just because yes. there is so very, um, there's almost little else to say other than that they're just such beautiful enduring um works of art and not just because they were some of the earliest produced um well were they i mean paleo art by this point already had a good century of history behind it sorry no yeah. I, I, I don't mean earliest in in the whole uh, historical timeline i mean uh the ones that have become embedded in, in our um, consciousness, in our paleo imagery, the ones from the, the early 20th uh, century by artists like Burian and Knight and um, so forth. Yeah, I mean, and dinosaurs are obviously thoroughly outdated by modern standards. Um, the mammals were probably aged a bit better because they're mammals. <laughs> we have a lot more to work with, um, especially one day equivalents. But I just want to talk about the particular the sort of integuments of the well the faces of the dinosaurs in this um the theropods tend to be quite croc like and they have exposed teeth not really much in the way of guns if you look at the tarbosaurus the tyrannosaurus um he hasn't gone with lizardy lips there but no. the ornithischians do the ornithischians do have these um more reptilian mouths which of course seem to fall out of favor during the dinosaur renaissance period and are now coming back so people have said well hang on a minute do we actually have any good reason to yeah. suppose they had pseudo cheeks um yeah. i mean there was even a proposal they had muscular cheeks for a while by some authors scientists but uh yeah now the argument i guess would be pseudo cheeks but i know some paleontologists prefer again lizardy lips shall we call them um rather than pseudo cheeks and yeah so it's, it's almost a return to 
I suppose that that in a way can make it seem off-putting to modern audiences because it feels like a return to the work of Burian in the sense that, you know, of it being outdated. But it is interesting to see what a different look it gives them. And, and yeah. inter- also interesting to see these things return, I suppose. I'm sort of thinking that there might be a bit of personal preference in here. If you look at interviews with Burian, he says, well... I don't find T-Rex a very attractive animal and he he um he admits <laughs> that he tends to be more on the side of the herbivores those those uh, seem more sympathetic to him. So there is I think an element of personal preference at play here in the difference between how how gnarly and toothy and unattractive he makes the theropod versus how you know, maybe a bit more sedate and friendly looking the herbivores are. So you think that the exposed teeth of the theropods could be possibly somewhat due to the scientific advice he was getting, but also partly due to his biases in that he wants them to be look ugly and menacing and sort of uh, yeah unappealing, which... In, in, well, in the scientific case, advice he was giving was make these things weird, make them right? strange, yeah, <laughs> right. You know that. It's funny that we're now returning to this sort of appearance for ornithischian well, dinosaurs. But yeah, I for think, the herbivores. I mean, I, I think the, the, the return to the to older depictions has been happening some time, particularly uh, in, in the aftermath of the of all yesterdays, for example, after the, the sort of trim, athletic, uh, very streamlined looking dinosaurs of the late dinosaur renaissance. Um, so the, the Greg Paul generation. Right, exactly. Um, we've come back to the the big, uh, fleshy, heavy, um, large-bodied dinosaurs um, that we knew previously from people like Burian. It's it's a truism to say, but these things, you know, are cyclical, aren't they? Everything old is new again, right? Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the ceratopsians. So again, um, lizardy lips, no pseudo cheeks, yada yada. Um, the Styracosaurus with the slightly odd frill. Um, Copied the way that over to... and over and over again. Yeah, presumably because you didn't have the best references and it's copied, as you said, over and over and over. Um, and in my edition, at least, it's, and I guess Niels is, opposite the Triceratops, which is yes. probably bet much better. Um, but what I always liked about the Triceratops piece in particular was the sort of the dynamism and the range of head movement showing off in just those two individuals yeah that's very good. you have the sense of the head obviously being tilted fully down then being pushed back thrust upwards so you have an idea then of how much the head can move you know against i mean which you don't get with the styracosaurus because it's you know, both of them are in the same sort of position it's kind of standing there standing around yeah one of them's even got the head pressed into the shoulders and it looks like some kind of john mclaughlin situation almost <laughs> where it's sort of fused um but yeah, with the Triceratops, you can see how it looks with the head both tilted fully down and fully back. Um, so it gives you a good rate, idea of the sort of range of movement and makes yeah. it look more dynamic. It's like the one in the background's ripping up the plants from the ground or the one in the foreground just grabbing them. I, I have seen the Styracosaurus, but mine is opposite the Chasmosaur. Oh. In in our version, the Chasmosaur is absent. I think that, that would be uh, the Chasmosaurus okay. that were copied from Bakker. Um, I'll have to take your word for that one because I don't remember. Because later, uh, Burian did a version of Chasmosaurus where he was very heavily inspired by Bakker, which right. shows his enthusiasm for the uh, dinosaur renaissance. I see. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Other ceratopsids here. Uh, I see Protoceratops and I see uh, Monoclonius. Yeah. And in the case of Monoclonius, it does have a rhino snout, doesn't it? Is it? No, 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 that really. little wrinkle, that little wrinkle between the horn and the beak, that's a, that's rhino. And then the nostrils on the side. I, I think that's interpretive. Um, yeah, I think that's almost where the um, the keratin is meeting the yeah the scales. I, the skin, I would say really. yes, but not yeah, not that that um, that ruling out uh, uh, rhinoceros. Um, as an influence completely is is um, uh, necessary here because yeah I mean it's it's tempting to make that connection and certainly as early as that it's, um, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a later piece than the Protoceratops Protoceratops in that very classic crouched um, guys yeah. but it's sprawled. not yeah <laughs> crouched sprawled I suppose at least it does have nice sharp crouched beak has the uh, flared jugals and everything that looks that's quite nice but yeah. It's very classic Protoceratops. Again, inspiring. I mean, you had similar things from other artists like Neve Parker, but um, inspiring countless toys and life-size models and things throughout the throughout the decades. They're not particularly colourful, whereas they could have been, I suppose, because again, it's the old paradigm of their big reptiles and they're a bit dull and. Um, well, they they around. would stand out. If he would have done that, they would have contrasted much more with the mammals later on in the book. That's true. And I think this way the book is much more of a piece. There isn't yeah. much more there isn't that enormous contrast between the dinosaurs and the mammals, which with night there kind of was. And of course there are exceptions to that. For example, you have Consognathus, which I imagine because it was so small. He felt more of free reign to give it um, more interesting patination. It's got these um, sort of stripy mackerel-like patterns going on down its flanks. Um, and the good old-fashioned contrasting reddish head, <laughs> just like on Tyrannosaurus. It's funny, it has what kind of an echo there. Find it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's on a big spread with Archaeopteryx. Yeah, that's page 114. Yeah, I see it. Archaeopteryx with yeah. the blue wings there. I suppose he quite understandably decided that the bigger animals should have more subdued colours, which is fine. Although, also worth noting, the Trachodon, too, have quite interesting colours. Yeah, I was going to bring that up with the sort of yellow lines there. Yeah, the blue and the yellow stripes. um, As I said, copied so many times. And yeah, okay, the the T-Rex is kind of green, but it's a bit of a classic look with that um, semi-contrasting kind of reddish head. (laughs) People still come up with models and paintings inspired by that. Yeah. you can buy this Kyodo toy, well, model with that kind of color scheme on it, and they call it the classic color, which is great. I <laughs> right. I've got the stripy one myself, by the way, the stripy yellowish one. I guess there are a lot of mammals in this. So, lots of elephants. Some mammals, lots of elephants. Elephantids. Elephant line. Elephantoids. Yeah. Elephant um, forms. And they are pretty spectacular themselves i mean that one piece with the um columbia mammoth and it's rearing up as the smilodon goes past with its cubs and that looks kind of terrifying (laughs) (laughs) i mean elephants are terrifying they can be if they want to yes but also it's great to see 
it's great to see Smilodon rather than you know stabbing something to death. It's it's in the role of the it's actually being threatened here. Its cubs are being threatened. Yeah, and absolutely dwarfed by that mammoth. Yeah, and the moody sky and everything. It's just absolutely beautiful piece. Actually, on that point, Mark, um, you, what you said there about um, Smilodon not <laughs> not stabbing something to death, it's ha- it has been observed before by others that um, Burian's work tends to be on the whole quite bloodless, which I believe was something you had an issue with um, with regard to uh, Prehistoric Planet. I was just reminded That's of that. kind of a different thing. I mean, I, I meant that in the sense of you literally had things being eaten alive and having chunks taken out of them and there was no blood. No, this, that's fair. This, of course, that that isn't happening. Um, no. It's bloodless in the sense that there's no violence or little but, violence. Yeah, but, that's, but that was a conscious uh, decision, it seems, on Burian's part. I think he was more interested in, and I don't say this in at all uh, a disparaging way. He was probably more interested in in representing uh, idols, yes. you know, than of scenes of of that nature. You know, a hunting violence scene that that would require you to depict that sort of violence. Yes, you are definitely right. Uh, he and uh, Augusta as well were very interested in sort of an idealized picture of the prehistoric world. Mm. Nevertheless, I do think the pieces, some of the pieces anyway, tend to be quite moody. Yes. Very not much violent, so. but, but moody. There has been some speculation, and really this is speculation. Lascaz gets involved in it, but, but other people as well, um, that some of it has been a reflection uh, of some of the hard times that Burian lived through, that by extension the whole of Czechoslovakia lived through in the mid-20th century without getting into specifics. I mean, it's not an unreasonable uh, supposition to make, I would say. I suppose there is a bit of a a melancholy in places. Especially with that iguanodon that is literally walking a road of bones. It's in the cemetery of its species. Yeah. Yes, that's remarkably moody. Uh, Funnily enough, I'd actually just noticed that today, looking at it again, um, and then you brought it up, that so there's bones there. I've never really seen those before. I've never really noticed it. It's funny. Or little details that I worked in. I mean, I, I wanted to bring up the Megaloceros, which is one that I wouldn't always pay much attention to. But if you're talking about ones that are moody and evolve confrontation, um, the, the Megaloceros, the stag on its own, running away from these predators, the absolutely stunning sky. Um, again, <laughs> skies. skies. Burian skies. We, he should have just painted a, you know, skies before man. And we could have had that. <laughs> and disguise. <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts on it? Um, when we were talking earlier about the atmosphere of melancholy in in his paintings, and the possibility that they may have been influenced by uh, the period uh, in which he lived through, I am tempted to, to suggest that this is part of his artistic education as well. Um, again, it's been observed by other writers that um, the the air of romance that percolates through all of his paintings seems to me to to evince his uh, academic uh, classical training in painting. And in so many of these paintings, it's almost Caspar David Friedrich with prehistoric animals uh, instead of... Uh, um, you know, um, do you, you, you know... You know Caspar David Friedrich. I remember when I was standing on a uh, windswept cliff and I'd have you took a photo. And a, like, what was that? Was painting. Exactly. That's uh, that's kind of like <laughs> the that's kind of the the uh, we're going to use the word iconic again. <laughs> the, the iconic 
No, but again, it's warranted. It's warranted. It's the iconic Friedrich painting. And that motif of, of the, the wanderer, the lone um, person uh, against the, the world and the elements and the natural world and all the rest of it, um, which is... And, you know, the, the heroic the aspect. The heroic aspect, which, is, which forms so much of the romantic, and I mean romantic with a capital R, sensibility, the, the movement during the early uh, 19th century. Um, this gets translated later in um, lots of movie posters <laughs> because this motif... Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Yeah, right. You, you know it. You recognize it immediately. But anyway, that aside... Um, Apart from this very recognizable Friedrich motif of the the lone wanderer, um, if you look at other paintings of Fried, uh, of um, Friedrich, he he really does encapsulate that the the romantic sensibility of of melancholy of well well of darkness of with with regard to melancholy and darkness. I would like to bring up the illustration or the painting of Platy Belladon because. It is virtually impossible not to make Placy Belladon look incredibly goofy. <laughs> the vast majority of people who have attempted to produce a reconstruction of Placy Belladon has made this really goofy looking thing. Well, I mean, it's because of its ridiculous skull, of course. But somehow, yeah, just look at Burian's take on it with the two solemn uh, Placy Belladon and this sort of swampland. This, it just it's a sea of browns and greys and darkness and melancholy and cloudy yeah, skies. But that's it. The two of them looking very similar. But you see what I mean? It's like looking at uh, at Friedrich with prehistoric animals, and and I mean this in the best possible way. Be careful though, because John Conway might get some ideas. <laughs> I'm sure he's already done plenty. Oh no! <laughs> well, it's a second edition of paintings with dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, whatever it's called. Pla- Pla- Platy Belladon. Whenever freaky elephants are involved, I also inevitably have to think of Dali. No, oh, of, of course, course, this is earlier yeah. than that, but you know, it's just the idea of there's <laughs> elephants and they're freaky. Yes, <laughs> of course. Oh, and I just—I'm sorry, this is a bit um, off topic here, but I just happened to put it in the book. I was flicking through the Forest Rocket, the for- well, Forest Rockus. That was the Forest Rockers in our... I mean, it, it helps that, of course, uh, Volta Design in Germany made that life-size model exactly the same pose that was then painted in exactly the same way by all these parks throughout the world. Yep. Um, there's, there's a park I went to earlier in the year that even had an army of them, and they were all exactly the same pose like this. What it was, it's like, um, you know, God, we're stuck in some kind of trippy burial nightmare. <laughs> all these things going towards us but yeah another one that was just so influential uh but sorry but that one isn't particularly dark and moody actually it's um i mean yeah the birds stooped over and looks a bit threatening and i mean as it inevitably will but it's, it's a nice open sort of bright landscape plenty of sunshine yeah <laughs> um, where were we oh yeah m- moodiness <laughs> um i i wanted to i mean uh, quite apart from the mammals all being excellent um and Burian managed to, managed to make all of them look remarkably dignified, even Platy Belladon, which is quite a feat. Um, placing in the context that he does helps. It's not leering out the viewer going, oh, look at me, look at my tusks. <laughs> um, but the the hominids as well. The hominids, oh. The hominids are best described as no, uncanny. In, in, the, in the best possible <laughs> way, because, um, yeah, it is 
it's the same feeling. Yeah, it's it's the yeah. same feeling you you see when you uh, we look at the best reconstructions of of our early ancestors. Um, we could, that there is a chill that runs um, through one's spine um, at just how how recognisable they feel. Particularly um, the Australopithecus, um, which on my edition was on page one hundred and eighty one, which is wielding uh, sort of rudimentary tools. And, okay, I can't comment on how dated or not scientifically it, it might be. Um, artistically, it looks incredibly mm. convincing. Mm. Um, yes. Least. Yes. So, and, and again, again, that's that very solemn, dignified look in Dignified is such, it's the best description yes. for this. Because, yeah, there is none of the, the sense of ridicule that you get um, when you look at some of these early... Um, depictions of hominids um dignified is the best description because you know he grants them so much so much of that yeah that is perfect i mean as you said exactly none of the ridicule of our mm. precursors um that you know, right. being inferior oh, no, there's none of this great chain of being right. kind of right. thinking yeah. where you know we are the perfect endpoint and everything it's, that came before it's us not, this is not some ooga booga no indeed there. no yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's, not a cartoon thing. it's important to note um, that this surely is is an, a reflection of another of his um, great thoughts on this, because um, he is very much against uh, some of the prevailing racist attitudes of the time when it comes to, when it Absolutely. comes to paleo uh, anthropology, and he was convinced that the more we discover about uh, uh, early human ancestors, um, the more the racist tropes are going to be demolished and and it's and it's wonderful to yes. see this played out in his paintings um with that great sense of dignity and and a uh, feeling of intelligence yes um, exactly it was sort of in in his way it was quiet resistance right yeah because I would say. racism was very much very much baked into into scientific orthodoxy mm -hmm. uh, in his time particularly before the war yes and it is, as you said, Burian believed, and I think he was right, that evolution would disprove racism. Yeah. This is his way of, of expressing that idea. Yes. I mean, I, I didn't really know that about him, but it, you know, looking at this mm. doesn't really surprise me. It fits definitely with this approach. And that there isn't a sense of superiority. Um, absolutely. And yeah, the, the dignity. I think dignity is one thing you can say. Dignity to pre-human um you know our, our ancestors and dignity to poor platy belladon who has been so hard done by yes dignified platy belladon is rare indeed I, i'd say the, the one that is a bit less dignified is poor old um Basilosaurus, which once again is a big serpent with no lips why why would everyone insist on not giving Basilosaurus lips it's a whale <laughs> why i suppose it's has to do with its Sort of primitive nature, I suppose, but yeah. And uh, no. again, he wasn't—he wasn't a big fan of those carnivores, man. I think <laughs> I think that's it. So. Even though you know orcas look quite cute, but maybe that didn't occur to him. I think yeah, so many people would have straight to Basilosaurus over the years and made it look really too reptilian without lips. I mean, it's a it's a whale. Yeah, it's a whale called Saurus. You know, it's, it's it's easy to forget yeah. um, by mistake back then, certainly, especially with such limited material. Yeah. But, you know, I, I do take your point. Yeah. yeah sorry. Pet, pet peeve, though, about Pazillosaurus reconstructions <laughs> over the years. We do seem to have moved on from that now. So that's uh, that's good. It's not exactly uh, any kind of black mark on this book, which is so full of incredible work. 
Um, I'm, not, I'm not going to get hung up over a, <laughs> a single whale, no. unless it's the one that replaced Dippy in the NHM. I get hung oh, up. Oh, are you one. still? But um... uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> A lot of these reconstructions came to me secondhand because in many cases I saw artwork that was influenced, uh, I use the word influenced charitably here, by this before I actually yeah. saw this. Yeah, me too. And then picking up a copy of this book and finding out what a treasure trove it is and how incredibly skilled and, and how incredibly talented he was. Completely. Well, yes. Absolutely I've a, a huge treat. Yes. No, I'm, I've had much the same experience. Me too. You've seen the the knockoffs and then you come back to this and then realize, oh, that's mm. where they got that from. And you re and you see all the little touches that make Burian so vastly superior yeah. <laughs> to the knockoffs. Yeah. <laughs> think, oh, yeah, that's, that's how it's done. Yeah, that's, but every time I turn done. a page, I see how he influenced paleo art even today. Yes. I mean, you only have to look at the work I mean, the of Troiko. Best, no, I'm kidding. The best <laughs> artists do that, don't they? It's just, no, but as you say, Mark, um, there's Emiliano Troiko, um, who is probably the most obvious. Yeah, um, it doesn't like being compared with Burian like that. No, but, <laughs> no, but, but I think, I think he, he came to, uh, to make peace with it, um, I believe he said in, in uh, your interview with him. Um, and he understands why people make that connection. And another another great of our times, um, who, though not directly influenced by uh, Burian I, um, that we can see, but uh, but who is comparable in terms of the way uh, he treats the animals and the environment in which they lived, is Douglas Henderson, of course. Yes. Yes. We should try and get him on. Even now, even now, I see people write about Burian and say, well. There was a romanticism to his work that people after him don't match. And I'm like, have you never seen a Douglas have Anderson painting? No, no but, this is, no, but I think this is another, a, a, another conversation to be had about the larger, I, I hesitate to use yeah. the word tropes again, but um, certain ideals within paleo art that get repeated so that um, at the expense of others. Um, and maybe there is, no, not maybe, there is plenty of room for romance and for atmosphere and for yes. sensibility. Sensibility, I'm using this word consciously. Um, there is plenty of room for that in paleo art, which you very rarely see now. Uh, we, we're seeing more of it now in uh, post or yesterday's again. But, but yeah, it makes one forget when somebody does it as outstandingly as, for instance, Douglas Henderson. But yes, uh, exactly what you said, Niels. You know, let's not forget when somebody does that yeah. and does it uh, so beautifully. I mean, sometimes there are these movements saying, "Well, all this, all this old-fashioned stuff—that uh, that that was all that was all a bit of rubbish, wasn't it?" Because they they were completely badly informed. Well, that's obviously wrong. But then again, yeah. there's also sort of a, a gatekeepy snobism around Burian of people saying paleo art peaked with him and and the people after him were never as good as him and that yeah. i also categorically yeah. reject <laughs> oh yes you know. <laughs> <Let's cut. laughs> without question <laughs> without question um I, I, said that. well no but i think that just Liscas is probably uh not far the from most, the only one <laughs> quite but mm. that but that only demonstrates the extent of their knowledge when it comes to the work that is being produced now um 
that's you know mm. that's pretty much all that can be said on that <laughs> on that head. The gauntlet has been thrown down. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I don't I don't mean it. I don't mean it in that way. I just mean that you can be innocently unaware, um, you know, because uh, if you're if you're just looking exclusively at the great uh, masters, um, you are going to forget um, the and, and especially because we are there are so many If you're many blissfully of us unaware, now. don't write a book about it. <laughs> he needs, to, needs to buy a copy of Mesozoic Art, man. Available from all good yeah. retailers. Um, please, please, Darren and um, Steve White, please send your checks too. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I mean. There are so many of us now producing so much work. It, it is hard to keep up, even if you are as familiar with the scene as we are. Um, so um, I, it's understandable that others will have missed this if you are focused on on historic paleo art. Anyway. You are charitable as always. <laughs> on the subject of, of his legacy, um, I mean, we've already touched on the way he's influenced so many and not in obvious ways, um, like with Douglas Henderson, for example. But um, I, I just want to say, because I especially loved this fact, um, that uh, Burian worked, and you know you know I how much I value artists who, for whom uh, paleo art is just a fraction of their oeuvre. And Burian was exactly uh, one such artist, even though oh, most yeah, of the absolutely. world recognizes him as, yeah, even though most of us recognize him as, as a, uh, a paleo artist now. This yeah. was a fraction, and I do mean a fraction, of the work that he did because he illustrated, again, another aspect about him that I love. He illustrated classics of literature. He did, and in his home country, that is still what he is most famous for. And that's wonderful. And that's wonderful. And I wish that that, um, that aspect of him was more universally recognized too. And I mean, it's estimated that he might have produced up to 20,000 paintings in his lifetime. Yeah. And of these... Oh, it's, it's a staggering was, I, number. I don't think even like no, but yeah, I, I don't think Mike Benson hasn't written that number of popular dinosaur books. <laughs> it's yeah, a staggering a number, and of these, uh, I know up to possibly twenty thousand. Of these, maybe eight hundred were paleontological in nature. You know, which is still a pretty significant number. Exactly, it's but when you, but huge. when you, yeah. But when you think about that, you know, it's you know, that's just a tiny fraction of, of what he did. Um, but but this became um, a, a, it's a confluence of all the things that we have just been discussing. That this was the the uh, the flowering of paleo imagery, uh, and uh, and he became synonymous with that age and and for his paleo imagery, and 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 that's why he's famous for that now. Um, but yeah, it's just it's wonderful to know, and and also it it allows us to see how his background in those other aspects, the uh, with illustrating fiction, comes in to his uh, paleontological work, and again, the romanticism that we talked about, the sense of drama and the sense of narrative appeal, and the the idols of the Mesozoic world and beyond. I really am convinced that these have been fed by uh, his experience in, in book illustration, in, in paintings of other kinds. And I, I, I will keep coming back to this and I hope we will have a discussion of it someday. This is what I value so much in, um, in paleo art now, that you are bringing these other aspects in and, um, and you are not ashamed 
to have sensibility in paleo art and not just to create um, uh, scientifically literate and accurate depictions, even though they are obviously important. I think this in many ways um, is what people can afford to take away from Burian, much more than just um, the iconic status of uh, the depictions of the animals. Well, that's a very good note to end on. Um, of course, you would say that because you're a professional artist. Yes. And a biased one. <laughs> you're biased, yeah. But no, it's, you're exactly biased. right. I mean, I've nothing Thank to add you. to that. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, that's that. <laughs> that's, that was an exciting interview we had with yeah, ourselves. Yeah, 26 in the bag. Well, uh, we uh, just had an interview with the uh, amazing Nati Himapan. <laughs> Thank you for thank you for sharing your thoughts on uh, on the importance of of paleo art and uh, being uh, broadly oriented. Oh, thank you very much. We wish you much happiness in your future endeavors, and uh, thank you for coming on to this podcast, which you are on every month. <laughs> well, well, it's made. We are going to cut all of this off, right? <laughs> every time it's made. <laughs> why, why do we cut this? Leave no. <laughs> a bit of it in. Neil's, Neil, Neil's at discretion. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My discretion is, do I still think it's funny when I'm, when I'm actually editing? Yeah, it's, <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you, Nancy, for your, um, thank you for your input, as you're saying. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, Niels, um, it's just occurred to me because I didn't want to interrupt your flow earlier, but you said that Burian was born in 1908, um, but I believe it was 1905, rather. Was it? Uh, yes. Yes, you are correct. I gave Burian three years. Just put something in. Or, or took them away from him, uh, depending on how you look. <laughs> my, my apologies. You made 5,000 paintings in those years. My apologies. We all lie about our age. I certainly do. <clears throat> no, you, you just We're cutting that emotion. out. We're cutting that out. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't lie. I just mutter it quietly. I hope people don't yeah. notice. <laughs> if you have listened this far, then thank you for listening in spite of the lack of interview and the fact it was just the three of us. And by the three of us, I mean mostly paying her to do all the intelligent stuff to say. Well, I mean, Neil's did too, of course, with the, with the research. They did, did lots of well, research. Completely. Um, thank you both. So, no, but I hope I hope didn't the lack of an interview notwithstanding that this was um, an enjoyable episode because I think this is an artist who, uh, whom everybody looks up to. This this is um, an artist worth devoting an entire episode to. I mean, if Alice absolutely. Woodward is, Burian most definitely is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Um, come back next time when we're devoting an entire episode to. Uh, Let's find out the. <laughs> yeah, um, I just sort of plucked a random book, like, um, I don't know, some 1980s piece of junk that I've just pulled out of my collection. Um, yeah. Anyway, thank you so much again for another podcast episode. Yes, thank you very thank much you. for uh, showing up and sharing your thoughts and potting with me. I really enjoyed it. We got there in the end. Thank you. Yes, yes we did. Thanks very much. Thanks for doing the hard work, Niels. Uh, uh, Pleasure, as, always, as always, thank you. Um, and of course, thanks to you, dear listener, for sticking around, uh, bearing with us. Our schedule's gone a bit wobbly, but we, we keep churning these out. C'est la vie, mes amis. Oh, eventually. And, uh, you know, next month we'll be back. I say hopefully, but next month we'll be back. Let's do it. And uh, we'll no doubt have another 
exciting and interesting episode for you. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> and with that, I bid you farewell. Tot ziens. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Tot ziens. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Haasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon.